Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Sam Westrop. I direct the Middle East Forum's Islamist Watch Project. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Abdul Rahman Bindamnan. Um, our topic today is one of education, Islamism and education. And I'm sure those of you who have followed the question and the threat of Islamism over the last few decades will have noticed that education has often been in the mix. Um, just after 9-11, uh, a lot of the conversation was on madrasas, Islamic schools around the world that many in the West feared to be hotbeds of radicalization or extremism. Um, that extended to the West, too. There were extremism scandals in Britain over the infiltration of public schools by, by Islamist movements and Islamist forces. But education is also a vulnerability. Um, those who have followed the excesses and violence of the Taliban in Afghanistan will have noticed the fear the Taliban places on a woman's education, a girl's education, indeed education more generally. So education is key to the development of Islamism and they seek to harness it, to control it. And there are few better qualified to speak on this issue than our guest, Abdul Rahman. Um, we're delighted to have you with us. Um, Abdul Rahman uh, has a BA in religious studies from the University of Miami uh, and an MSc in international education from the University of Pennsylvania. And he's currently a PhD student at the University of Minnesota, where he contributes to a wide variety of publications, most notably his recent piece on the Hamline controversy, which we'll discuss briefly in a second, received uh, significant attention for his uh, urging of Americans and Muslims to accept freedom of expression within education. Uh, Abdul Rahman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, my pleasure. So I, I'd like to start off uh, really by asking you about your own background. You grew up in Yemen. Tell us about your experience of an Islamic education in Yemen. Yeah, so thank you very much for the time to speak about my experience. So I grew up in a Muslim family in Yemen. My father is an imam of a mosque there in Yemen. And my mother also teaches the woman in, in our village. Um, how to read the Quran and things like that. So I basically grew up in the mosque um, from my early days. And that's where I learned how to read um, and how to memorize the Quran. Right even before I went to school, um, the legitimate schools in Yemen. So I had a lot of schooling on my in my family and in my house. Most of it was Islamic schooling. And it's rote learning, memorizing verses, and getting the pronunciation right. And it's a very important thing for Muslims. And then I went to schools in Yemen, which a lot like most students in Yemen, um, it's also rote learning. It's not very different than the schooling that they got in my family. And they don't encourage critical thinking. They don't encourage diversity of opinion, diversity of thoughts. I mean, I still remember... Um, the social sciences, it's almost like a propaganda for the state. It's not a social science as, as they understand it in the West. And just the route learning in, in Yemen is so astonishing. I have a professor here at the University of Minnesota, and he told me a funny story of one of his students. He, you know, the student came from a similar country like Yemen. And, you know, here professors assign tons of papers for the classes. And the student came in panic to the professor and said, you assigned to us a hundred page of reading. How am I supposed to memorize all of this before the class? You know, 
So the student presumed that they should memorize everything that they had been assigned to. And that's unfortunately the learning that we get, I got in Yemen. Um, and I got really good at memorizing things and that's how I excelled in the system. I memorized the whole Quran through my education of my family. And then when I went to school, I was just really good at memorizing things. And that put me at, 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 the, at the top of the list of the class. Um, but then I actually wasn't planning to come to the US and it wasn't my agenda at all. You know, And even when I got the scholarship, I did not accept it immediately. There's a lot of resistance from me and my family because especially my family, they didn't want me to go to the US um, due to whatever that they hear about the U.S. On, on Yemen. But eventually I decided to come to the U.S. And it's actually here that I understood the content and the substance of my learning in Yemen. Because I have to start from zero here. And that's why I came up with the zero generation term. Because I need to learn how to think. I, learned, I need to learn how to read critically. None of which has been taught to me in Yemen. Um, and add to that the language, I have to learn the language, but it's also at the thinking level. It's a different way of thinking. So it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm quite critical, and I want to just be clear, I'm not quite critical about the education I got in Yemen, precisely because it has not helped me to get my education here in the U.S. I see. Now, for our audience, um, we would welcome questions. We'll get to those at the end. So please use the Q&A box at the bottom of your, your Zoom screen, and we'll be able to get to those questions in, in just a bit. Um, then the role that education plays in the Islamist fighting in Yemen, and by fighting, mm -hmm. I both mean uh, actual violence between, of course, the Houthis and, and the Sunni-backed forces, but also the intra-Islamist rivalries, mm -hmm. the scene hostilities between different sects, say, mm -hmm. within the Sunni tradition, the Salafis, the Sufis, and, and so on. What right. role does education play in those rivalries and those hostilities? Yeah, so Yemen is an interesting country. Anybody who gets in power, want to force their ideology in everybody else. We don't have principle of democracy or to encourage dialogue to let people come to their own conclusions. It's basically anybody who is in power, they want to use force to force everybody to their way of thinking. Now, notably, in Yemen, we have what they call an Arabic Hezbollah, which I think is part of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they were directly influenced by the writings of Sayyid Qutb and Hassan al-Banna from Egypt. Um, I, their mosques and their centers are very well known in Yemen. I did not um, directly went and studied with them, but I have a lot of friends who went and studied with them and I'm very familiar with their curriculum. You know, Sayyid Qutb and Hassan al-Banna, those are required readings. And even in our schools, um, they try to propagate some of those um, propaganda in, in the curriculum and on the text and on the reading. So Islamism, I would say, or the Muslim Brotherhood in Yemen, their chapter in Yemen has had a lot of influence in the education system. I mean, one of the former ministers, he is a self-pronounced, um, he, he was part of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood and he was not ashamed to disguise it. And, and, and as part of his reforming of education, he tried to instill some of those things. Um, this come across in the curriculum. So when we read um, Islamic law, Islamic law is, 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 is a point of contention in Yemen. 
when we read Islamic law or Sharia as they know it, they just teach you what basically the, the, the Islamism and the Muslim Brotherhood have said about it. They don't teach you about the other voices on the religion and on our tradition that have said into it. They just silence them. And it came to my surprise that when I came here to study religion, that's when I got exposed to that. It was, it was some people call progressive Islam. But so any party in Yemen, they get in power, they try to force it to other people. Right now, as you mentioned, Houthi is taking power, especially in the north. And they are basically doing what the Islamists has been doing, you know. And part of the reasoning actually is, you know, we, during the rule of the Islamists, they were trying to force their ideology on us, which we don't agree with, and they were not incorporating our own sources. So now when they got in power, they are trying to, you know, to do the exact opposite and say, now we are going to force our Houthis and Shiis ideology on you, and we are not going to incorporate anything from Islamism. So it's just a matter of who's in power, and then they just force it on everybody. Now, the Salafis also in Yemen, um, there is a group of Salafis in Yemen who are quite conservative, but actually some of them, they just choose to not participate in politics and they try to propagate their own agenda through mosques and, and through other means. The last group that I want to mention is the Sufis. And those are the most peaceful of all these groups because they have their own mosques and they also try to propagate their own teaching without using the state. But the Islamists, and the Houthis, those are very clear in trying to using the government, and government means to enforce their religious leaning into, into the population. I see, interesting. Now, you've written elsewhere about the importance within education of advancing the primacy of reason over the primacy of revelation. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like? <laughs> what does that look like in the Islamic world more, more generally? Do we need to get religion out of schools or is there a way for Islam and education to coexist within the education system? Right. This is actually an interesting um, debate, a long-standing debate in the Islamic tradition. There is one um, very well-known scholar who has published a very well-known book called um, Revelation of Reason and the Tension Between the Two. So it's a very long-standing issue in the Islamic tradition. There is one philosopher who said, and he's also a Muslim philosopher, who said, when we are trying to decide whether to follow reason or revelation, he said, how are we going to decide? Are we going to use reason to decide whether to prioritize reason or revelation, or are we going to use other things? And his own conclusion is, even people who prioritize revelation are actually using reason to say, hey, they are using reason to refute reason, you see, and they want to have the primacy of revelation by using reason. So it's a very delicate, um, delicate debate in the Islamic world. One specific example that I think is very relevant is the theory of evolution. And that is, is not just an issue for Muslims, but even for other religions, even here in the United States. But in Yemen, they do not teach the theory of evolution simply because it contradicts the creation of story on the Quran. And that is a very specific case on how you're going to negotiate the difference between reason and revelation. They absolutely do not even include it on the curriculum. And they are very, um, they even try to, to make jokes about it. You know, they say well, humans cannot evolve from monkeys 
which is an oversimplification of the Darwinian theory, you know. So I think that when it comes to science, science, and I have written about this, science is all about innovation. But the Islamic tradition is actually, as has been understood, is about reservations. And this is what most of the Muslim scholars in Yemen say, to be a good thinker within the Islamic tradition is actually to preserve what scholars of the past has said and not to come up with something new. So if you came up with something new, that's actually a problem, you know. But in science, it is not. Science is based on doubt, on skepticism, and on those are long-standing principles in science that I think just goes and contradict with, with the foundational principles of Islam. And this is an issue of all religions, and I think other religions also have resolved this issue by leaving it out of scientific discussions. And this is what's happening here um, on higher education. So I am an advocate for just leaving religion um, outside of the scientific discussions, or at least give both a hearing and let the students make up their own minds. But to, to prevent certain theories from the discussion seems to me, um, it just, you know, it, it deprives students from knowledge that has been produced, which they could greatly benefit from. Mm. So this is an interesting segue to the question of Islamism in the West and how and how Western uh, societies must deal with uh, increasingly theocratic minded forces within the education system. And by which I mean, uh, if you take the United States, um, there is a particular movement here aligned with uh, the Muslim Brotherhood that advances something they call the Islamization of knowledge. And this theory holds, and it's practiced in private Islamic schools across Europe and North America. Hmm. This theory holds that secular subjects, as they call them, everything from maths to English to history to political science to economics, can be taught through an Islamic lens. Hmm. This is the, the theory they hold. Is this possible? Is there a way to uh, uh, educate young Muslims, whether in the West or or uh, in the in, in the Middle East or elsewhere in the Muslim world, is there a way to do this through an Islamic lens and still present these secular subjects honestly and, and usefully? Yeah, no, I am with Bassem Tibbi on this point. He, he would say that this is a contradiction in terms, you know. What basically you are trying to do by Islamicizing knowledge is you will engage in cherry picking. And I don't like that. Then you would say this scientific theory accords with my interpretation with this verse, therefore I'm going to accept it. Or this scientific theory does not accord with my interpretation of this verse, therefore I'm going to reject it. I think science has different criteria of evaluating its knowledge, you know, replications of studies and so on and so forth. But to impose an additional criteria, which is bringing Islam and trying to use Islam as a filter to filter science, that seems to me to just defies the purpose of science. And it's also a messy process because Islam as a religion needs people to interpret it. So are you going to use the interpretation of the past, which most of conservative and Islamists try to do, or are you trying to use reformist Muslim views? You know, And in our tradition, we had a lot of scholars who were great scientists. You know. Um, for example, Ibn Khaldun, um, Al-Farabi is known in English as Avarus, Ibn Sina. All of these were great scientists. And I mean, Al-Jabra is also an Arabic word. So 
Muslims have engaged in science at the highest level during the Islamic civilization without making religion to stand on the way. And Islamism, as Bassem Tibi and other historians have shown, is a recent phenomenon that started in Egypt in response to various events transpiring on the Middle Eastern world. So what I, my, my take on Islamization of knowledge is actually to look back on the Islamic tradition and see how our scientists back on the day have done science. And they have done it in a way that without interfering so Islam and science, they, they see these things as two separate things, you know. No, that's fascinating. Now, as, as mentioned before, you made, um, uh, you, you received great acclaim and interest for your, your writings on the Hamline University incident. And in case anyone in the audience uh, uh, missed this, this was the, the furor at Hamline University uh, a few months ago, uh, after an academic was fired for showing a piece of artwork showing the Prophet Muhammad uh, in one of her classes. And she was fired as a result of a campaign by uh, some Islamist linked students uh, on, on campus. Um, uh, ben, you, you, you uh, wrote about this. You, you, you encouraged, advocated for freedom of expression. Um, what is your take on the threat that Islamism poses here in the United States to education, given the Hamline incident? Yeah, so I was in touch with a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and his name is Jonathan Zimmerman. He always writes about anything going on in higher education. And I have been in touch with him after I graduated. And he actually sent me his op-ed about the controversy at Hamline because he knew that, you know, I'm interested in Islam and in education. So I have read his piece and I was like, you know, I am Muslim. This is a few miles away from where I'm living. I might as well write on it, you know. And so I've written the piece and submitted it to the Star Tribune um newspaper in minnesota and I, I never published with them before but the editors liked the piece and they run it and it made it made a good impact on the community there so i think that um the the, the way that the student reacted to 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 what the professor did is just is it's is overreaction you know um and i think this has to do with american muslims and I was the president of the Muslim Student Association in Miami. And as I said, as I am an international Muslim and I have seen how American Muslims engage with the religion. And it's quite very different than how we engage with it, you know? Um, so for them, it's a matter of identity. Identity is at the top of their list. So it's not actually, I don't think that the students were motivated so much by religion because Anybody who followed the debate would know that these pictures were drawn by Muslims. So what the professor did is technically is not, is not incorrect. And a lot of Muslim professors, I mean, there's a Muslim, there's a professor at the University of Minnesota who's Muslim. He emailed me and said he used the same things in his class all the time. And he does not get any backlash. And, and, and there's another professor at Duke uh, the New York Times, when they ran the story about it, he also said that he uh, always showed the same image, but he is from Iran and he's Muslim. So you see, there is this thing of identity going on between American Muslim and how they engage with non-Muslim dealing with religion. I think, and this is my claim, I think, and I said that in the op-ed, 
that if the professor was Muslim, you know, or non-white and, 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 and doesn't share other identities, perhaps it will not be an issue. So my proposed framework of understanding the issue at Hamline is to look at it from an identity perspective. I don't think it's a debate about religion and whether this is technically correct or not, because those images were drawn by Muslims. And when you listen to the uh, to what the students were saying, it's it's not any theological debate or anything. It's just oh, we were we were hurt by by this and that. So it's a matter of emotions and identity and things like that which I have seen throughout my engagement with American Muslims. That seems to be a common thread. So identity politics lies at the heart of this uh, and Islamism to some extent, or at least exploiting these identity politics. Is that, is that the general sense you, you, you have, that you have, you have university administrations plagued by this identity politics question. And then when Islamists apply pressure, uh, they they often get what they want. Is that, is that your is that a correct sort of uh, understanding of, of your right? Text? Right. I think um, I I think Tibbi's book Islam's predicament with modernity is is good to mention here. Islamists and most Muslims have an issue with with modernity, you know, and so how do you handle that? You know, some Islamists their approach is let's Islamize the knowledge that comes out of modernity. And I don't think, and Tibi is his own argument, that's not how, how you do it. But rather you reform the religion, you know, instead of Islamicizing the knowledge. So I think that, you know, Islamists might tab and capitalize on the identity uh, politics that's going on in higher education. And it's actually, it's just a common at atmosphere in higher education now that everybody doesn't want to be critical of the religion, especially Islam, you know. And that is something that even me, as a scholar from Yemen, which is <laughs> arguably one of the most uh, old and authentic Muslim countries in the world, sometimes even me and my views get interpreted or misinterpreted as Islamophobic, which I think is just ludicrous outcome of the identity politics, because they created an atmosphere where you cannot talk critically about religion, especially about Islam. And somehow Islam is immune from criticism, you know, and it's not. We need to criticize it, and whether it's by Muslim or non-Muslim, it's fine. I mean, it's 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 another subject, like any other subject, that we need to encourage dialogue rather than suppress it. And that is what the Hamline controversy highlighted: is those students were trying to suppress certain dialogue about Islam, and I think Islamism might capitalize on that to advance their agenda. Okay. I mean, so last question from me, and then we'll, we'll turn to some questions from the audience. I, I was wondering, what is your hope for reformist voices pushing back against the Islamist stranglehold over education and more generally over sections of Islam around, around the world? Do you think the reformist voice will win? Do you think uh, Islamists are on the decline? What is your, what is your understanding of, of the current trend? I think that I have what I call conditional hope. I think we have some, a couple of reformists on the West, and I think that the West is a good place to spur reform. Because in Muslim countries, you cannot talk, you know, you cannot write, they, they will just suppress you. So I think the West is a good environment for reform. But as I mentioned, 
there is this critical atmosphere that does not encourage reformers to advance their ideas. They always get pushed back and pushed back on the form of suppressing them and what typically call labeling game. You know, you submit a, a critical critique of Islam and then just the response will be, this is Islamophobic. Like that, that's 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 a labeling game instead of engaging with the substance. So I think Muslims and non-Muslims can support the reformers because they are minorities in the in the in the Islamic tradition. And even I think this is one of a historian account, even during the Islamic civilization, one of the reasons of the decline, they say, is because those critical voices within the religion of Islam did not get a lot of support. And that's why they, they have been sidelined and marginalized. And that's how the conservative part of Islam became dominant. And it is dominant until this day. Most, the average Americans only they hear about conservative Islam through the media, but they don't hear that actually in Islam we have you know, liberal Islam or progressive Islam. That's new news to them because they don't hear about it. You know. And that's what I try to do in my writing is just to teach Muslim and non-Muslim. I mean, I'm surprised even that non-Muslims themselves don't know about it because in our schooling system, we are not exposed to it, you know? And those scholars on the past, like Ibn Khaldun, they are not veneered even in the Islamic tradition. They are somehow seen as forgotten, but I think they are very relevant to, what, to, to, to the discussions that we are having nowadays. So I think I have hope and the condition that people try to support progressive Islam, whether they are Muslims or non-Muslims, you know. Fascinating. So there's quite a few questions from the audience asking about the minutiae of the education system in Yemen. Um, uh, Madan Lai asks, what were you taught about non-Muslim religions, the Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity? Uh, David Levine asks, uh, what of the secular subjects, history, geography, science, mathematics? Uh, and then other questions asking, what were you taught about the open, uh, about the outside world? Um, so yes, give us a, give us a, a bit of a hint about what uh, uh, a secular education in Yemen looked like, at least the secular subjects in, in right. Yemen looked like, and, and how, were, how were foreign peoples regarded? Yeah, let me take David's question first about, uh, did I learn history, geography, science, and mathematics in Yemen? Um, most of these topics, the way they teach social science, as I said, it's, it's almost uh, propaganda of the state. They teach you all about the state. It's not really social science on the, on the critical and rigorous meaning of the word. Um, we are not taught about the social science method or anything like that. Um, Madan's question, were you also thought to hate non-Muslim religions, Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, and Buddhism? So they are, I would say that the curriculum in Yemen is very focused in Islam. And, and they are not really interested in world religions. And to the extent then, then that they mention them, it's always, I would say, very critical and, and just showing where they are wrong. So they are definitely focusing on the differences rather than the similarities. And I think that is just uh, a loss because Islam is one religion among so many other religions. And there is so much value of comparative religious studies that, that we, we are missing in Yemen. Um, what's and the what, are the, what are the outside world? How was, how was 
America taught? How was Europe taught? How was were were uh, other powers in the Middle East taught? Oh Is yeah, it yeah. It's, it's very. I mean, I I did not know anything about the United States. Uh, so it's they 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 really don't go in any great depth um, in modern history or in European history. It's very focused on Arabic history, Islamic history. So it's not. It doesn't give you a comprehensive education that will prepare you for the 21st century. And that is why when I came here, I realized that I need to get a different kind of education for myself if I want to join the modern world. So that somewhat begins to answer David Levine's other question where he asks, uh, given the limitations of this memorization uh, uh, focused education in Yemen, you were clearly able to master the complexities of the English language and critical thinking, he writes. How was that possible for you? So was this all done in your arrival to the US? Do you have to sort of re retrain yourself or or, or yeah. what was, or, or, I mean, to some extent, there must have been, of course, a very <laughs> tremendous extant ability and you must have been having some of these thoughts in Yemen. But but yes, to what extent did you have to uh, uh, retrain yourself to? to... Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I'm actually trying to write about it. I'm trying to write an article called The Importance of Mentors. I have two mentors from whom I learned everything about the language. One of them is named George Gobin. He is a professor emeritus at Duke. And he really taught me everything about the English language. Um, and his approach, quite simply, is about expectations. He is saying that we as human beings, our minds, is conditioned for certain expectations. So when you read or when you write, there is always expectation from the part of the reader that most writers sometimes might not be aware of those expectations, you know. But through his scholarship, he actually explained what those expectations are. So I've learned a lot about English from George Gobin and because he has taken a personal interest in me. And so we have been meeting on Zoom for a long time. And through those Zoom meetings and email correspondence and reading his work, that's where I would say I made the, the big advancement in my language because he would give me honest feedback on where I could improve, honest feedback of where I'm doing well. And I would say that my speaking has really benefited a lot from writing because I write a lot and that's just give you the feel of the language. Of course. Now, I'm afraid we're running out of time. So just a, a couple more questions. Uh, an anonymous questioner asks, how can Westerners, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, help your ideas get a footing uh, in Muslim majority countries? Is there anything the West can be doing uh, to push the values that you've espoused today? Yeah, one idea that uh, my other mentor, his name is Walt McClure, that he proposed, that I think is a good idea. He said is to start with Muslim countries that are already advancing. So for example, Morocco or Tunisia. Those countries will be a little bit more receptive to progressive Islam. You know, in fact, even the work of Bassem Tibi, I think, is more positively reviewed in those countries rather than in other countries. So Bassem Tibi in Yemen, he would not have any luck on, on finding a good audience there. But I think in Morocco and Tunisia, um, he, he did have a good audience there. So I think starting from the West and then going to those Muslim countries that are already receptive to progressive Islamic ideas, then from those other Muslim countries, things might move around. Just like how Islamists move from Egypt to Yemen, 
Wahhabism moved from Saudi to Yemen. If we targeted those countries that are already receptive to those kind of ideas, then it might travel rather than just coming from the West to Yemen, let's say, or from the US to Yemen, which might be unlikely. I see, I see. Now, very lastly, uh, another anonymous uh, uh, questioner asks, uh, well, firstly, she writes very, he writes very thankful for your presentation, very hopeful. Who are some of the other reformists that you think uh, we should pay attention to? Are there other reformist voices in the Muslim world that you think are also saying sensible things on this question? Yeah, so I endorse strongly the scholarship of Bassem Tibi, and he's two books that I think are very informative to me. One is called Islam's Predicament with Modernity, and he has a, a huge reference list there of list of scholars who are advancing the reformist agenda. And his other book called Islamism and Islam, which was published by Yale University Press, I think those two books have been of great help to me, and they had all most of the names of the reformists in Islam. Wonderful. Um, Abdul Rahman, thank you so much for joining us today. I wish we had more time uh, as this has been a, a fascinating discussion. I'm sorry if you asked a question and I didn't get to it. There was a lot of interest in this subject. Um, this is a regular webinar series. If this is uh, your first time to a Middle East Forum webinar, please do sign up to our webinar mailing list, which you can, you can do at meforum. Uh, .org. And uh, we hope to publish some articles by Abdul Rahman very soon, so you'll be able to read his writings at uh, the Middle East Forum and also our in-house outlet focus on Western Islamism uh, as well. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Abdul Rahman, and have a wonderful weekend. All right. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye.